morning. Well, I invite you to take the word of the Lord and open it up to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22. Our text is verse 1 to 23 of Luke chapter 22, and we will read God's word together. And as we do that, I would ask that you would stand if you are able uh, as we read the words inspired of God Almighty, given to us and preserved throughout the ages. Let us read together Luke 22, beginning in verse number one. The word of the Lord says here, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, of which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we praise you for your word, which is living and which is active this morning. Father, we humbly come asking your spirit to give life to your word. We pray that you would give sight to our eyes, that you would help us to hear from you this morning. For Father, without you, it's all in vain. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use your word to speak to us this day. It's in Christ's name we humbly ask it. Amen. Well, you may be seated. The time of Jesus' crucif crucifixion is quickly 
drawing near as we come to these final three chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the recorded, recorded events in these verses, in particular chapters, uh, verse 7 and following, take place on what we know as Thursday of Jesus' Passion Week. It's on the next day, Friday, midday, that Jesus would be crucified. But much has to happen before that is going to take place. And as we see in verse number 1 of chapter 22, it says, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And so the Passover is the context uh, this morning for our time together. It's the background. And as you are well aware, it is within the context of the Passover celebration that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lamb of God who is sent to take away our sins. Jesus is whom the Passover lamb prepared and points us to. And it's within that context that these verses take place. Uh, this is the day that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed and prepared. The Passover meal uh, would be observed on this day. And after the Passover meal, you would have this seven-day period, week-long time of the celebration of unleavened bread as that would continue on in this feast. And these two things were seen to be very close together as Luke shows us here in the first verse of saying unleavened bread, which is called the Passover. So the Passover celebrates the deliverance from the final 10th plague upon the Egyptians. A lamb was to be killed as God was calling his people out of Egypt through Moses back into the promised land. And you'll remember the plagues that came, came upon the people in this last plague of death of the firstborn. A lamb was to be killed on that night. Its blood was to be spread over the mantle of the door so that God's wrath would pass over that house that had the blood upon the wood. Israel had been commemorating this meal for some 1,400 years. And now Jesus is preparing to partake of this meal with his disciples. His remaining time on earth was short. The events surrounding and bringing him to this point of death on the cross were taking their final form. They were coming to fruition. It was time for him to be crucified. Two main points this morning are going to guide us through these verses. First off, we see a contrast of plans in verses 1 to 13. So we see this contrast of plans that we're going to look at. And the second uh, main point is an institution of a new covenant. That's verse 14 to 23. So we're going to look at this contrast of plans and then look at Jesus coming to institute the new covenant covenant in his blood. So let's begin with verse, uh, numbers, verse numbers 1 to 13. Uh, we'll call this Judah's plan, beginning in verse 2 to 6. In verse number 2, we see the chief priest and the scribe were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. 
Uh, we've seen them, the chief priests described. These are the religious leaders of the day. You went to church in that day. These were going to be the people that were there leading the services. These are the people that were over the temple. These are the people uh, pointing others to God's word. They were seeking to kill Jesus. And the heat had been turning up for some time we've seen in this book. And here it has come to the crescendo. And these are the religious leaders who are seeking to do this to Jesus. They wanted to put him to death, but the text tells us they feared the people. During the Passover, Jerusalem would have been uh, uh, swollen with people. Just think of D.C. on a holiday weekend and all the places are full, all the hotels are full, people are swamped and coming in to this place, to Jerusalem. They're coming in to celebrate the Passover together. You had to do that with inside the city confines of Jerusalem. And here they came. And there were many in the crowd and around Jesus in particular who would have caused quite a stir if the chief priests and the scribes came amidst everybody to take Jesus away to seek to put him to death. And so they sought to do this on the side, as it were. And thus, we come to verse 3 to 6. Satan comes and enters into Judas and Iscariot, as we know, one of the 12 apostles. It says thereof that Satan came, he entered in, and he went away and conferred with the chief priest and with the officers how he might betray him to them. And you see their response in these verses. They are ecstatic. They are glad. Here comes this opportunity. They're already planning, seeking how to put Jesus to death. And here comes one of his own, the inside scoop. Judah coming to them. What had gotten into Judah? Judas, excuse me. Well, quite literally, as this text points out, Satan had. Satan had entered into him. But it's not as though Judas was not culpable for his sins. It's not as though he's like all of a sudden turned into a zombie with Satan pulling the levers, so to speak, and he's just walking around and it's really Satan that is doing all of this. In Matthew's gospel, he states that Judas went to the chief priest and here's what Judas said to the uh, chief priest, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? Right, so Judas even from this time, and we know in the past had this desire and love of money. Obviously his view of Jesus and who Jesus was led him to this decision to say, let me get some money out of this. I know they're seeking to kill him. I can, I can take advantage of this situation. You see, money and the love of it was at the root of Judas, Judas's sin. And we've seen over and over in Luke how money is dangerous. And we need to just pause and see it one more time. Wealth and possessions and the desire for them are a dangerous thing. And that the root of the issue was Judas loved and wanted things more than he loved and wanted Jesus. Jesus was not in his mind whom he claimed that he was. And so Judas placed his love upon other things. He was willing to hand over Jesus and lead the chief priest to Jesus while he was away from the crowds so that he could get 
some money. What a warning to us about loving and desiring anything more than we love and desire to be obedient to Jesus. Yes, he was filled with Satan, but how did that practically work itself out? It was the love of things, the desire to get things that led him to turn his back upon the savior of the world. And that needs to be a warning to all of us here today, especially within the county with which we live in this United States of America, that we need to hear those words, money, the love of it, anything other than Jesus. The love to pursue that is a dangerous thing that will lead us astray. We see that leading Judas astray in this text. That isn't the only lesson that we need to see from this. There's many, but just to point out one more, we need to also see that Judas fell even though he was one of the 12. Wasn't one of from the larger crowd. It wasn't somebody that was seeking to do this and they're on the outside and they're kind of seeking to overhear what's happening with Jesus and they're trying to get some money from the rulers. No, th this was one of the 12 who had been with Jesus, who had seen all that Jesus was doing. This is the treasurer of the group. This is the one that carried the money bags. This is the one who saw all the things that Jesus did. And we need to learn a lesson from that. He was one of the 12. Now, Peter would fall too, but he would repent. Judas did not. Just zeroing in with some application, Christian leaders can and will fall away from the faith. We have seen it. Church history shows it. Ministers, preachers, leaders, the, the point I want us to see is do not lose faith when that happens. We see it happening here. And oftentimes, right, we, we lament and we, when especially a big figure within the Christian community maybe deconverts and turns away from the faith and our hearts just sink within us. And I'm afraid some Christians are even caused to, to just even reconsider the truths of God's word because some person, some man or woman has fallen from the faith. And we just need to see here, this happened with one of the 12. It is super sad, but it should not cause us to turn away from the truth of God's word when we see someone in a high position all of a sudden turn away from the faith. If Adam or I or one of the elders were to fall off the deep end, deny the faith, walk away from the church, the call to you is to keep on believing the truth of the gospel because God's words are true even if every man is a liar. Even when leaders in authority walk away, God's word remains truth. Maybe you've been shaken by, in the past uh, by someone you love and respect, maybe within the church or again, the larger church culture that has denied the faith or walked away. Today, it's even popular to share your de-conversion experience with others because what trumps everything is just being true to yourself and who you are and whatever that looks like in your life. Well, the point to us from God's word is to stay the course. 
If it happened to one of the 12 apostles, it can happen to others. Brothers and sisters, let us persevere in the truth of God's word. I think of the apostle Paul who came to the Galatians, right? And he says, even if, even if I come back with a different message, even if an angel comes back and, and preaches to you a different gospel, let him be damned, the apostle Paul says. Brothers and sisters, let us receive God's word and persevere in God's word. We need to, there's many more we could look at with Judas here, but those two things I think are important for us to see, how money is an avenue that the Lord uses, it's many other things as well, but money can lead us away from God, the desire for it to do whatever we can to get more of it at the expense of God and his word and the truth. And let us be warned here of those in high positions that fall away from the faith and let us remain persistent and persevering in the truth. Well, Judas had made his plans, we see that. He's conferring with the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, but next we see someone else making his plans in verse seven to 13, and that is Jesus. Jesus has his plans that he is making. Judas was in full betrayal mode, but Jesus was in total control of this situation. In verse seven, we see that the day had come to sacrifice the lamb, the Passover lamb. In verse eight and following, we see Jesus sending Peter and John to go secure and prepare, prepare a place for them to eat this Passover. They ask where they are to do this, and Luke records Jesus' detailed instructions for us in verse 10 to 12. First, they go into the city, which again would be loaded with people. Just imagine the scene. And they would see a man carrying a jar of water there to meet him. And you think, well, how in the world does that work? Well, uh, one thing that might help us culturally in that day, women would carry water in jars and men would carry water in animal skins, just a cultural thing. Uh, so this person, he is saying, would stick out. They would stick out a little bit in this way. And he says, when you see that, you follow this man. We don't know if he's a servant, a relative, a friend of this household, but follow him back to where he goes and then tell the master of the house, right? And when you're disciples, you just kind of, I think by this point you're learning. When Jesus says, go and do this and find this person and say this to him, nah, just do it, just do it. They've seen him do miraculous things and that's exactly what they do. They go to this house. The teacher says to you, <laughs> right? So here's these words. Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. We say, okay, and then comes verse 13. Look at what Luke adds. He says, and they went and found it just as he, that is Jesus, had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, what, what's going on here? Is this a supernatural type of thing where Jesus just arranged this because he was all powerful? Did Jesus meet with the owner of the house earlier and speak with him and arrange it all? Well, I think that's a great question, but the text doesn't seem to answer it. It just states what took place. But what we are to see is that Jesus is in control. Luke, Luke goes to links in verse number 13. The disciples found it just as Jesus had said. You see, that is meant to show us that 
things are going according to plan. Why else would Luke record all of these little details here for us? Why else would he say, hey, here's what's going to happen. You go into the city. These, these are all like, we're down here making sausage, right? These, these are the, the little details of how events take place. He records these things for us. And he said, just so you know, here's, here's how this went down before the institution of the, the Lord's Supper came about. Why would he record that? Because he wants us to see Jesus is in full control and knowledge of the situation. Very shortly, within a few hours, it's going to look like things are out of control. It's going to look like Jesus is a victim of these events of betrayal as if there was nothing he could have done about it. But Luke is showing us here that Jesus is in control of this situation. Our savior is sovereign. These events are lining up perfectly. Things are going according to plan. And listen, that is a truth that we as God's people need to hear and rest in. Because when things seem to be spinning and are spinning out of control, what's our response? What's the general response of people? Is to think, oh no, where, where is God and what is he up to? How could these things happen? This is not right. It doesn't look good from my eyes and my perspective. Dear brother and sister, let us be reminded as we see example 65,589 in God's word that he is in control over all things even who's carrying what sort of jug of water, where, and when the disciples go and run into, into them. We can trust Jesus. We can trust him. Just simply ask, what areas of your life do you especially need to apply that truth in right now? The truth is the same for all of us, that Jesus is in control. These events are coming. They're going to look out of control, especially to the disciples and all of them. But listen, the disciples would be reading this, knowing this after the crucifixion, after these events took place. And how could their hearts not be encouraged saying, man, it looked like things were out of control. We're trying to save Jesus. All along, things were going according to plan. He knew what was happening. This is all what God is doing. We need to learn from that as well. We don't always understand why things are this way or that way. When we face things like that in our lives, whether difficulty, times of physical problems, mental problems, understanding things, not being able to see behind why this is happening or that is happening, what God's word calls us to is faith to trust in our savior and to follow in obedience to him. So Jesus sent Peter, he sent John, at least in part. He sent them to do these things. I think he sent them to do those things so that Judas wouldn't know about it, right? What's Judas doing at this point? His antennas are up and he's like, where are we going to be when it's away from the crowds, where are we gonna be? Because I've gotta find that out and I've gotta get word to the leaders so that they can come to Jesus. There's still more that Jesus needed to do. So they were going to a secluded place, right? This upper room. Judas didn't need to know where this was. So Jesus sent Peter, he sent John 
to secure these things and that's what they did and they brought and prepared the meal. And as we're still going to see, Jesus had things to do and that's what brings us to the second point of namely Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. That's what we see secondly in verse 14 to 23. In these verses, we see Jesus take what was once an Old Testament observance of the very important Passover meal and bring that meal to fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. Four things to help us go through this part of the text. Four main things we see in this verse. The first is this, the meaning of the big picture, verse 14 to 18, the meaning of the big picture. Again, it was, it was probably just Peter and John who went to the temple. They went to the temple, they had the lamb slaughtered. The priest would slaughter the lamb and prepare the lamb, half butcher up the lamb. They had everything arranged, they brought that back. The table was set, the table was spread. Verse 14 states that, that they reclined at table. They would have been leaning, what that looked like culturally in that day, to all uh, uh, be around the table. They would have been on their left arm, laying on the ground with probably a pillow, and their right arm they would have been eating with. So they're reclined around this table. And Jesus states in verse number 15, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. With all that was coming, think about it. This is the evening of Thursday. He's gonna be crucified in just a few, few short hours. With all that was coming, what was on Jesus's mind? He knew that that was going to take place, crucifixion, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of his people. All this was on his mind, yet he desired, earnestly desired, to eat this Passover with the disciples before he suffered. For it was in this meal that he, that pointed to who he was and what he came to do. He was showing them that he was the lamb. He was the one who was going to have his body broken. His blood was going to be shed that would bring about the forgiveness of sins. And then the last part of verse number 16, Jesus speaks here about not eating of this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. More on that in just a second. We'll pick it up as we hit verse 18. So what's a little interesting here in Luke, just as we kind of zoom back, that's different than the other gospels is that Luke kind of goes cup, bread, cup. I don't know if you caught that as we read through. So there's first a cup, uh, then there's the bread, and then there's a cup again. The other gospels, uh, you know, we just go bread, then cup. And we say, well, what's, what's going on uh, here in Luke? Well, this is easily resolved when we realize that these events are happening in the midst of the Passover meal, which was a progressive meal, so to speak. And the things that you ate and things that you drank had meaning to them. They were symbols. They were symbolic. Think about it for just a minute. In this meal uh, that they celebrated, of course, the focal feature was the Passover lamb that had been killed, that had been slaughtered. Remember, the 1,440 some odd years, every year God's people had been celebrating this Passover, killing this lamb, what? To remind them of the deliverance of God through a sacrifice and the blood that caused 
caused Satan, the death angel, the death angel, excuse me, to come and to pass over that house. It reminded them of the blood of the lamb smeared on the door lentils on the wood in order to escape the visitation of this angel of death. The unleavened bread that they had reminded them of the swiftness of their redemption and that there wasn't time to bake it. There wasn't time to let the yeast grow and to do its thing. There wasn't time for that. You had to eat it flat. It's unleavened. The bowl of salt and water reminded them of the tears of their captivity in Egypt. The bitter herbs of the bitterness of their slavery as they would eat the bitter herbs. The paste that was made would resemble the clay that they used to make bricks during their bondage in Egypt. And lastly were the four cups of wine that they drank, which were interspersed during the meal and reminded them of the four promises of Exodus 6, verse 6 to 7. So four cups of wine that they would have interspersed throughout the, the progression of the meal. The, the first reminded them that I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The second, I will deliver you from slavery. The third, I will redeem you with arm and great acts of judgment. And the fourth, I will take you to be my people. It was a meal filled with meaning to remember to celebrate what God had done in rescuing them from bondage, from slavery out of Egypt. And Jesus was leading them in this spiritual meal. And Jesus clearly emphasized both in and verse 18 how he would not celebrate this Passover meal and now the Lord's Supper until the kingdom of God comes. There's no other stronger negation in the Greek language than is used here. It's a double negative. You can't do that in English. That's pretty bad in English, but in Greek it's perfectly fine in its emphasis. And Jesus is saying, I will not partake of this again until the kingdom of God comes and it is fulfilled. Jesus is already acknowledging the future here, that he would die, that he would rise, that he would return to this earth to set up his kingdom visibly in power and might. And so when we take communion, there's a forward-looking nature to it, isn't it? We are awaiting the return of Jesus. We're awaiting what is to come when the marriage supper of the lamb will take place, when we will all sit down and feast at a banquet with Jesus himself in the flesh. The rest of the New Testament fleshes out and speaks about. There is coming a meal when Jesus returns where all of his people will be at this banquet. And I mean a meal, I mean a meal, like a literal meal. And don't worry about it. The little cups of wine aren't gonna be little thimble-sized things that we take here in the bread, just a little tiny uh, mouse piece of bread that we give out. Why are those elements so small? Why are they so small? Because it's not the full meal. It's not the full thing. You see, what it's supposed to do is just in that forward-looking nature is just to remind you this is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. This is a meal. It's just a little bit. It's a little bit. We take it. We're not physically, if that's all you had for lunch today was this, I'm sorry, see one of us after we'll, we'll do something, right? But if that's all you had, you would really be hungry. It's not meant to fill us physically. That meal is coming when Jesus returns and it'll be more than a physical filling up on that day. Don't worry about that. Christ will be there, but right, this points future, 
future to the coming banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us ever be reminded of that. Jesus promised us here, he will return and set up his kingdom, the kingdom of God visibly, fully upon this earth and there will be a banquet where God's people will feast with King Jesus. And that's part of what he is teaching them here. There's that big picture meaning of Jesus returning, the kingdom coming, and this being a celebration of that fact. Next, we come to the familiar verses of Jesus taking the elements of bread and wine and instituting what we know and celebrate as the Lord's Supper. First, we see in verse 19 the meaning of the bread. Verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those ver uh, words are so common to our ears, but just, just think for a moment, if you were one of the disciples there celebrating the Passover meal, and, and maybe you're thinking Jesus is gonna say something like, this is the bread of affliction, as he would hold the bread, and he would say, this is this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate when they left Egypt. And, and maybe Jesus is changing scripts here and he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching us that the bread represents his body which would be broken on the cross. The disciples were to eat this bread which represented the body of Jesus. Just as the bread with which in the Passover meal had celebrated or reminded them of the bread of affliction as they were coming out of Egypt, Jesus was the lamb who came to take away sins. The lamb that they had just sacrificed at the temple was a type, it was a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. That lamb was sacrificed annually over and over. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice, period, game over in, right? It pointed to him just as the blood of the lamb diverted the wrath of God upon the firstborn of the house. Jesus' shed blood diverts the wrath of God upon those who receive it. You see, when we come to eat, eating is a symbolic language for faith. Faith is, we could say, spiritual eating. The act of eating this bread for us is the act of coming to Jesus in faith, saying, we believe that he is our sacrifice for sins. We believe his body was broken for us. Just as partaking of the Passover marked off the people of God in that day, so also the taking of communion marks off people today. Jesus reiterates this point that this was given for you. It's given for you. And I'll just make notice, that's a y'all there. That's a second person plural. So as we think about that, this is a body given for you. Have that, we often talk, everything's about us, right? In this, this time, this age, this, this nation with which we live. That's a plural. That's a plural. Jesus is saying, this is given for you. It's given for the church. It's given to those of you coming together to receive it. It's given to us. Christ gave himself for 
us, which obviously includes the second person singular, which is you. He's given himself for you. And Jesus states, do this in remembrance of me. You see, communion does a lot of things. There's multiple aspects that communion is teaching us. And one of those is remembering. Remembering what Jesus has done on the cross. We say it oftentimes of looking backwards, right? We look backwards, we both look forward and we'll get to a minute, it feeds us in the present. But we remember what Christ had done. The Passover, think about it this way, the Passover pointed forward to the cross, right? From that side of the Old Testament, communion points backwards to the cross. The cross is central to it all. Passover looked forward, communion looks backwards. Remembering and remembering uh, the context of the Passover meal as we look at this celebration. The children of God were celebrating this Passover annually. They were remembering what God had done for them. They remembered his redemption. They remembered the sacrifice of the lamb. They remembered God's salvation. And now communion points to those same realities of God's salvation for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul connects these dots where he states, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's equating there the reality of Christ's work and connecting that with a celebration of the Passover and the lamb imagery from the Old Testament. Next, we see the meaning of wine in verse 20. Jesus states there, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus then passes around a cup to the disciples for all of them to drink out of. Verse 20 explains that, what is happening. No longer are we to sacrifice a lamb because Jesus Christ himself is the lamb. Jesus is saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He says it's my blood. Now Jesus, not a lamb, is the one that is bringing about forgiveness of sins for all of God's people. He is our sacrifice. He died for us. He died in our place. Again, the text says the cup that is poured out for you. Jesus was pouring out his blood on the cross so that we might have forgiveness of sins. This is the glorious news of the gospel. Jesus is pouring out of his blood to bring forgiveness of sins to sinful people. This is our hope. This is the way we enter into the new covenant is through the blood of a greater sacrifice, through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a substitutionary sacrifice given for you. That is, in your place, this, this offering of Jesus on the cross is given for you so that you do not have to bear the wrath of God. And when we take communion, we are receiving this from Jesus. Now the wine doesn't miraculously turn into the actual blood of Jesus. The apostles there on that day didn't attribute the wine of the Passover meal to have actually turned into the blood of the lamb. 
Rather, the wine represented the blood of the lamb, just like the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the bowl of salt and water represented and were symbols of the Passover in Egypt. And this is in the context of that symbolic passing over and remembering of those things. So when we receive the cup, we're receiving what the cup represents, the blood of Jesus, the lamb of God that is our sacrifice. When we take the cup, we are associating ourselves as being God's people, receiving God's sacrifice for us. And the bread and the cup, listen, they are spiritual food for us. The elements are a memorial, but they are not only a memorial. They also encourage us and feed us spiritually in this present life. I'm afraid that this is something that we're just prone to miss. As if the celebrating of, of communion is, is, is something, at least in my background, it's more of a dirge, like something playing and it's, it's sad and you remember what Jesus did and you take it and that's kind of it. Yes, we remember, but there's more than that. It's also a celebration as we look forward and it's also a present strength for struggling sinners. Listen, the bread and the cup are visual pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're pictures of his substitutionary death on the cross in our place. And we receive his work, how it is by faith. And when we partake of communion, it's an opportunity for us to again and again hear and receive the promise of the gospel. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. He died for us. That's why we take it together. Right, that's why we take communion together. It's a corporate sort of thing, right? Jesus died for us. It's an opportunity for us again to say, I trust in Jesus. I believe in him. And for us to be encouraged that if we are trusting in Jesus, then we are forgiven of our sins because he died for us and to remember afresh that Jesus is coming again to set up his kingdom on his earth and we will be a part of that. We need, we need encouragement in this. We need this continually, right? There's a reason why we're not baptized every once a month, right? We come in and say, okay, it's time to be baptized. We're celebrating baptism. All of God's people will come down. That would really influx our numbers, make a lot of people happy that are higher-ups in the SBC, but right, we, we don't do that every Sunday to come in with baptism, to receive baptism again. Why not? Well, because Jesus didn't tell us to do that. If he did, we would do it, right? We'd do whatever he says to do. Jesus told us, you come in to the kingdom that way, but you continually, continually take the Lord's Supper. Why is that? Why is that? Well, Jesus knows a lot of things that we don't know, right? And one of those is this, we need encouragement we need that encouragement to be reminded over and over again that Jesus died for our sins. We need that opportunity, right, to say, I believe in Jesus. I'm trusting the gospel. I believe in what he did for me. And that is part of when we take this little cup here in a minute and we rip that, that little flimsy thing off the top and we take the little piece of bread. It's not just us doing that and taking that. It's us saying, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. 
I believe it. I remember what he did. And I am taking this in remembrance and obedience to him, trusting in him. And I trust and believe that his blood was shed for me. Just like the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, his blood was shed and God's people were saved. So also I trust in the blood of Jesus that it is for me that he gave it for me. And I take that and I open it up and I drink that little thimble sized full of juice, remembering what Jesus had done. You see, we need it for encouragement because we are in a battle with sin in our lives. How often do we feel the depths of that struggle each week? How often is it that, that we're, we're prone and tempted for Satan especially, but to, to pull us away from the people of God? Say, look at you, how, look what you've done, look what you've thought. For people struggling, am I saved? Is what Jesus, did, did, did what he do, can I really be saved? It's where Jesus is saying, look, take this, remember me, what I have done. It is an encouragement and we need that encouragement. We need that reminder. As we take communion, be reminded, brother and sister, Jesus has come for you. He gave himself for us. And these are his words. I gave myself for you, do this in remembrance of me. Take this cup, take this bread, do this, receive me in faith. It's an opportunity afresh. I just encourage you as you take communion, every time you take communion to have that mindset, I believe in Jesus, I receive his promise. He said he will save me, he said he will forgive me. I receive his promise of what he's done and I reach out in faith and I believe it, I trust it, I believe it. Well, right on the heels of this wonderful inauguration of the new covenant in Jesus's blood, we have another acknowledgement of the betrayer. And almost it just seems that the air, just Jesus instituting this and here we go, here's Judas right back up in this context of betrayal in verse 21 and following. So Judas is there, again, one of the 12, his right hand is there on the table. And verse 22 acknowledges that the death Jesus is getting ready to die is definitely a determined thing, as it says there. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Think about how encouraging that would be for the disciples after the fact, right? After Judas had betrayed him. Think about Peter, or well, we're not told, but whoever it was that sought to chop off the head and kind of missed and glanced an ear off, right? He's probably ready to go out back and fight with whoever betrayed Jesus, right, to them. He is ready to tango with them as well. But here, this would be encouragement as they knew, hey, Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He was in control. He knew about it. And it says in verse 22, for the son of man goes as it has been determined. Think Isaiah 53, 10 in particular. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's what Isaiah 53, 10 states. But it also acknowledges that Judas is still culpable for his behavior. It says, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So we see those two things hand in hand in this text. And the disciples question each other as to whom it could be. Judas's betrayal of Jesus would become clear in just a few short hours. And again, we see the point that Jesus is in total control. 
Jesus came willingly to die on the cross for us. If he wanted to stop it from happening for crying out loud, he knew who his betrayer was, yet he did nothing to stop him. Jesus indeed is our willing sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. He is the one the Passover pointed us to. He is the one we remember in communion. He is the one who feeds us spiritually. He is the one who will return and commune with us in the kingdom of God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you this day for the work that you have sent our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, to do. Father, we thank you this day that in an act of obedience to your word that we're able to celebrate this wonderful thing we now call communion. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he gave himself for us. Lord, would you help us, we pray, to be strengthened? Would you persevere us? in that truth? Would you bring us to that truth of the, if there's someone here who is not trusting in Christ on this day, that they would see their need for Christ, that they would see what these things represent with which we are about to do, and that they would trust in you by faith. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Savior that your word points us to. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.